So, Rich, here we are, Wandsworth, South London. Uh, one of your favourites, if not your favourite restaurant. I've been here before as well. Shea Bruce, how does it feel? It feels amazing, as it always does, as it did the first time I had lunch in here with my mate Andy in 1998. So here we are, 23 years later. Obviously, I can't tell you visually what it looks like, but the vibe is still fantastic. It's just, I mean, beautiful tablecloths. It maybe feels a little bit smarter than it did 23 years ago. I mean, I was here a few months ago and um, had a sensational meal with Liz and a couple of friends, and, and I'm pretty sure our lunch today is going to be quite special. This is a landmark, and, and for, for a restaurant here, you know, it's not in the center of town. This place has retained its Michelin star for all that time, so it's doing something right. And what I love about this restaurant before we've even had a drop of wine or anything to eat is the warmth the buzz the vitality but also the relaxed vibe as you come in and the staff are so professional but informal there's zero stuffiness here i mean it's just to die for a restaurant isn't it yeah i couldn't agree more i have been here before uh, and I, I don't remember it as well as you do but it's lovely it's light everybody's just pleasant and like you say professional but not stuffy which is it sounds easy but I think that's not an easy trick to pull off you just cannot help but have a smile on your face and think life is good when you're here it's lovely well hello and welcome to the final for now at least episode of the wine list with me Oliver Turnbull and of course Richard Lane and what could be better than for the final episode for us to tootle off down to southwest London to one of our favourite restaurants Chez Bruce also the supplier of course of the wine list that we've been using for reference throughout the entire series well we sat down there and we had um, well Rich it was really rather a spectacular lunch wasn't it Hi there all. Yeah, it was um, it was pretty lovely, wasn't it? A very special way to, to end the season, as you say. You know, I have to say, goodness me, there we were treated to a lovely table in the middle of the restaurant. The staff were fantastic. And when it came to, you know, dreaded old bill time, we weren't even allowed to see the bill. So huge thanks to Bruce Poole, as in Mr. Bruce, Mr. Shea Bruce, for all their hospitality and, and for their, you know, cooperation during, during season one. Utterly lovely. So, but we have a special treat don't we, uh, uh, to uh, tickle our taste buds for the last episode, haven't we, Rich? Oh, we certainly do have. We're in terms of a little uh, tawny port. Is that what you're referring to? Yes, I am. The uh, Society's Exhibition 10-Year-Old Tawny Port Matured in wood, which always sounds good, but we'll talk about why that's a good thing. Selected and shipped, of course, for the Wine Society. Yes, it's come from Portugal, I'm glad to say, because I, I always assumed port comes from Portugal, but actually, does it have to? Oh, Oliver, your, your powers of deduction really extraordinary. Port? Portugal? Well done, well done, well yeah. done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> just a, a tiny thing on, on, on the history, because it is quite interesting. I mean, there's been a fam fantastic relationship between Portugal and England stroke Great Britain over you know centuries oh it's half a millennium yeah it's um I think I'm right in saying they are our longest standing continual ally possibly in the world but certainly in Europe it's it's like 500 years it's extraordinary absolutely because at various times we've been at war with Spain and or France and all the rest of it so our kind of route our trade route for getting French wine and Spanish wine at various stages has been cut off but we've always got on well uh, with the Portuguese and so this 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 thriving trade of port wine this fantastic fortified style of wine has been alive and kicking literally for centuries and there are some port families with English names who have been living in the Douro Valley in northern Portugal for hundreds of years making this stuff shipping this stuff trading this stuff it seemed a good place to to kind of stop off drop off our final voyage if you like to, to drop into port 
And it's fortified wine. And I think I know what that is, but I'd rather you say the proper definition. It's uh, fortified with a spirit and it's uh, quite delicious. And you have it at the end of uh, the meal. I smelt a little bit. It just reminded me of Christmas. Oh, well, it's of course. Port has all these wonderful associations, Christmas being a good one. So basically, it's wine that starts its fermentation in, in the usual way. So let's take uh, red port. It's made from black grapes. Usually, they're called port grape varieties. I won't name them all, but often it's five grape varieties. And the fermentation starts, as we know how, with red to get the colour. That means lots of extractions of colour and of tannin from those grapes. But the interesting thing with port is fermentation is usually stopped when there's only five percent alcohol which means obviously that there's a lot of sugar left behind that the yeast hasn't already converted uh, the the sugar to alcohol clearly if you've only got five percent alcohol from grapes that would be sort of 12 13 or 14 percent if they were fermented to dryness so by stopping the fermentation at five percent and you're thinking how do you stop it well you add this blinking spirit called aguadente which is about 77 percent to be precise alcohol by volume that spirit kills the yeast straight away so the yeast cannot get, carry on fermenting you've got this obviously quite sweet liquid and of course you're fortifying it from as i said from around five percent up to around 20 percent is average for most ports so quite boozy and you think about it if your glass of port is 20 percent alcohol of which five percent is only coming from the ordinary fermentation that means 15 percent of your 20 percent 75 percent of your port glass is spirit which is why one has to go a bit easy with the old port it's definitely not a session drink no indeed so i know about tawny port and i know about ruby port but actually i don't know the difference oh sure 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 well tawny obviously refers to the color when you have a a ruby port it's pretty red, isn't it? Like red wine, like a deep ruby. You can pick up an, a bottle of ordinary ruby port in the supermarket or, or wine shop for around seven or eight pounds. You can also pick up a kind of supermarket, seven or eight pounds, quotes, tawny port. Actually a bit of a cheat because it really is ruby port that's just had the colour stripped out of it. Really? Yeah. Proper tawny port is to do with the way the wine is matured. And for ruby ports, which are red to begin with and stay red, and the reason they remain red is that they don't see much oxygen, if any oxygen at all, during their maturation before they're sold to consumers. Basically, it's quite simple. Most ruby ports, whether they become superb vintage ports that bottle age often for, for years or even decades before they're released, or whether, whether it's just a simple bottle of fiery ruby port that you pick up, as I say, for seven or eight pounds. They are basically matured in a pretty oxygen-free environment, and that's what enables them to retain their colour. Tawny ports, true tawny ports, as I said, not these cheaty ones that you get, are aged in wood, going back to your wood-aged definition on this Wine Society 10-year-old tawny port that we are uh, tasting today. And that basically means that when the wine has been made, its maturation takes place in wood. It could be oak barrels. In Portugal, they call them pipes. They are enormous wooden vessels that, that can hold hundreds of litres of port. And by maturing them in wood rather than in stainless steel, which is the vessels that ruby port would go into, it's the wooden pipes that un- enable or allow the, the passage, the very slight passage of oxygen through the walls of the wood into the wine which very gently oxidizes the wine and that's why the color starts to disappear as a result of the oxidation process and the flavors of a tawny port are quite different to a ruby port and we'll we'll taste our tawny port in a moment you get this lovely sort of raisiny raisined kind of flavor profile uh, often tasting of kind of currant
currants and molasses and that sort of thing. It's a really oxidized taste. Whereas ruby port, whether it's a simple ruby or a vintage port that's been bottle aged for many years, hasn't seen any wood at all, will still taste of primary fruit, of, of red fruits and black fruits and, and other things like that. So it's all to do with the maturation process of the port. Brilliant. Very clear. So what was very, very surprising is that uh, cheap tawny port is a bit of a ripoff because it's actually ruby port made to look tawny. And is it because people like the look of tawny and they think a tawny port is going to be... It's a bit like pale pink rosé. Sorry, I mustn't bang on about that again, but you get the point. Exactly. Appearances uh, mattering. And it it is quite interesting, actually, that appearances matter with, with this sort of cheat tawny port. Yeah, absolutely. People like the look of a tawny port because it looks aged and there's some sort of quality assessment or judgment made to a port that's that's looking a bit tawny. Generally speaking, with the exception of vintage ports, a vintage port means that it's such a good harvest. The grapes are so amazing that the way it works is the port producers declare a vintage and they don't usually declare it for a couple of years. They want to see how the port's getting on when it's made. But when they think they're going to have a superb quality port they declare the vintage most of the port producers they don't have to all declare it but quite often they do so you'll get certain years where quotes a vintage port is declared and vintage ports that have the word vintage written on it will come from one year but generally speaking port a bit like our non-vintage champagne is made across different vintages again blending often for house style so that you can get a consistent house style for yeah. certain houses to have a particular taste profile by blending across different vintages that's fine we understand that to answer your question how do you know if you're not being ripped off when it comes to a tawny or of it or, or a ruby well <laughs> the price will be a good indication a bottle front for seven or eight pounds and you see it in the supermarket then that's just a basic ruby or a basic tawny port the quotes cheats tawny port once you get to tawny ports that have uh, other uh, ports that have an age indication like this one has an indication of 10 years it means this tawny port wine from the wine society is roughly the wine around 10 years of age. It means that it's from vintages around maybe 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Ditto, you'll get an age indication for 20 years. And they obviously, they cost a bit more because the, the maturation's gone on for longer. The, the wine spent more time in oak barrels, more oxygen's got in. You might have some more nuanced, interesting flavours. Plus, of course, wine that hangs around not being sold in bottles is costing space. So time is money sort of thing. So the older the port, the more expensive it is. You just need to look at the label. Really good explanation. Great. I'm learning all the time. Fabulous. I think I know enough now. And that was that was relatively quick and simple and painless. Good. Should we have a little, let's have a little nose of, of our portal. And then I think we need to just do our little quick resume of, of the series and, and look at our learning points that we've picked up from the series. Oh, it's definitely tawny. There's no doubt. Oh, it's a lovely colour. Tell me about the colour. Absolutely because, no doubt. Because I kind of know in my head what tawny is, but I'd love you to describe this colour to me. How am I going to do this? I mean, obviously, you have had 23 years of sight, is my reckoning. Oh, it smells lovely. Smells like Christmas. Smells like back home. Um, Yeah, it's a slightly watered down red, but not in a bad way, you're tawny. And there's a sort of brownie redness to it. So sepia, could I say sepia, sepia maybe? Okay. Mm. So, you know, there's old lovely sepia photographs you get of um, people standing awkwardly in Victorian poses, sort of like that. I remember, remember discovering some, some photographs from sort of my grandparents' era or even my great-grandparents' era, and extraordinary, yes, that sort of slight muzziness at the edges, fuzziness at the edges. For my nose, there's something really raisiny about the aromas, do you know what I mean? That's sort of... Um, the, the smell of chocolates and raisins that we had as kids, there's that really sort of sweet raisiny smell. 
it's almost Christmas cakey, and, yeah. and then this might be my mind no, playing fantastic. tricks. That is it. That, yeah, that dried fruit and spices. I'm not sure about the marzipan yeah. and spices. The spices. There you go. It's, exactly. It's, it's it's the marzipan, maybe a touch of butterscotch, maybe a touch of um, what's that lovely? You know, nutmeg. Those baking spices you have in the cake, dried fruits, dried almonds, um, dried apricots. There's little cubes of nondescript dried fruit in quotes, <laughs> and you wonder what they. Yes, absolutely. Cubes of matter, fruity matter. I've just had a small sip. I've actually got a bit of a cold which I'm not going to moan on about. And you know what? We've got a little bit of a cold, just a tiny sip of, oh, wow, feel good. <laughs> Marvellous. So what is surprising, and maybe I just haven't been so attuned before, is the sort of burning, warm sensation. It's the spiciness and the explosion in the mouth uh, that you get uh, more, it seems, from this fortification than you do even from one of those full-bodied wines that we've tried. Oh, absolutely. It's just a lovely explosion of, of taste and warmth and spiciness and cake coming through. Yum. You've summed it up. I mean, basically, all the mixing bowl, when, when your mum was making Christmas cake, before the cake was sort of put in the oven, it, it's this is what it smells of. I think I might be a tawny convert, but I will probably try a ruby again. Just to make sure, it's, it's nice to be able to say, no, no, no I prefer a tawny port, uh, and then have some explanation as to why. Because, of course, this whole series has been built around uh, making me look like a smart-ass at dinner parties <laughs> and not a complete numpty. Of course. Oh, yes. Uh, we're, we're, that, we're getting there. Oh, that's right. The premise of the series. I think this is an opportune moment <laughs> opportune moment of a little bit of reflection, not overly indulgent, but, I mean, it, it is important. This is the last ep. It's the time to ask some questions if you're doing any project, whether it's a work project or a, a social project or something for fun. You do occasionally have to go back and say, hmm, what were my stroke our original objectives and um, have we achieved any of them? Right. Yeah. And I think we'll probably find we've achieved different objectives. We've we've certainly headed towards the main objective, which was the wine list, which was just to sort of keep it simple so that people could grasp on to what we were going on about in the um in the series but it was a, a bit broader than that in in the sense of uh, introducing someone to a lot more aspects of wine so not just the taste and the selection from a wine list but a little bit about um, history geography all those sciences that you mentioned uh, earlier on that contribute to uh, making this making this thing i think we've, we've covered them all pretty well at a, a relatively superficial level but um, i don't think we ever wanted to make this um, some sort of doctorate no 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 not at all the wine list podcast is there for people like you all who like a glass of wine <laughs> sound like you in one of your intros <laughs> who they like a glass of wine but would like to know a little bit more and of course and that is the objective and and has been the objective all along it's not some serious academic kind of treatment of of, of the details or nuances of wine we've had to go into some detail perhaps my first observation would be all oh, when I go back and I'll play a couple of clips in a minute of of things that we said in the earlier episodes and I think it rather neatly summarises where you were particularly 10 episodes ago anyway and I think just by hearing a little bit of the things you were saying and I was saying in episode one gives us an indication as, as to how far you have come not that this is an exam or a course and you've got to be anywhere but I think it's just a lovely little example illustration really of the journey that we've been on so let's just have a little listen to a couple of clips from the early eps. This thing is probably 30, 30 pages long. So if I was presented with this on the table, not only would there be no, not much room for my bread and butter, but there's just page after page of wine, which would make me, you know, almost come out in a cold sweat. Spanish wine, Portugal wine, Germany wine, Australian, uh, Austrian wine, the rest of Europe and the Balkans white. 
as a whole section. And of course, the South African, American and French just runs to about five pages on its own. And there's a whole page of Beaujolais, a whole page of Bordeaux. And then on page 15, regional France read different sides of the river as well. I couldn't believe it. There we go. Let me see what I'm smelling. God, it's really difficult, you know. I feel like I've got an uncultured nose. No, 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 Oliver. It's only episode one. It's all right. (laughs) (laughs) By episode 10, I'll be getting black stars. I'm hoping. I mean, what do you think? Do you think my palate might get trained a little over these weeks if I'm really, you know, concentrating on it? I think your palate will be in a better place, hopefully, in 10 episodes time than (laughs) it is now. What about the finish all? Well, I mean, I'd love to comment if I knew what on earth you were talking about. How can a wine have a finish? Happy memories. Golly, I can't believe I said some of those things. Well, you definitely did say those things, all. The microphone never lies. Talking of which, this is what you were saying yesterday to our sommelier in Chez Bruce, Victor, when it came to choosing our wines. Well, seeing as I fell off a horse recently, uh, a horse called Rocky, I was looking down there and I couldn't believe that uh, there's a, a white. I know it's got some uh, Roussin in it. Rocking horse? Yeah, rocking horse. So as you, as you may know... Roussan is a Northern Rhone uh, grape varietal, white, and it's, it can show a certain amount of ripeness, but the Semillon gives it backbone and structure. You get that acidity that comes through. Props the wine up, essentially. You said props the wine up? You mean yeah. in the backbone? How would you mean by that? So with Northern Rhone whites, sometimes you struggle balancing acidity and a certain ripeness. These grape varieties ripen quick, and if you don't pick, you, you struggle to have a, an acidity that, that gives that backbone. So when I say props the wine up, it actually gives it support the semillon provides the acidity and the roussin provides the ripeness i i can get that this gentleman talks like you richard and describes things kindly just like you do (laughs) super well we'll have a carafe of that please absolutely would be brilliant a quick resume of the epsol i mean episode one clearly was all about starting off in 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 your relative comfort zones that's why we started with new zealand sauvignon blanc and with a good old-fashioned claret you acknowledged, even at the end of episode one, that the claret wasn't a particularly good quality. I think of the wine society's claret. And that was the only Bordeaux wine that we tasted in the series. So probably not doing Bordeaux many favours, actually. But anyway. I remember the claret tasted like home. Sunday lunch at ours, if it was a red meat, would always be uh, accompanied with a claret, which I was allowed to taste. And the Sauvignon Blanc was, yes, a familiarity. I think that is the thing I remember about Ep 1. It was a really good selection of wines because I felt comfortable because I knew where I was. Let's um, explore something a little bit a little bit outside this comfort zone. That's it. And that's important, actually, because a lot of people don't get out of, out of episode one. A lot of consumers stay with what they know because people like what they know and they're concerned or fearful or slightly anxious about making a choice into a field they know nothing about. And the last thing you want to do is spend quite a few quid on a bottle of wine and not enjoy it. So people get stuck at home base. Not renowned for their ex- exquisite wines. Probably you could buy the materials to build a wine rack or something. What was the wine that we ate with the sushi? We're certainly looking out for that now. Me and Louise had a lovely time eating sushi yes, and drinking indeed. that wine. And it was a German wine, wasn't that it? That was. That was the Riesling from Dr. Lucen. Of course. Dr. Lucen's Riesling. Which had some sweetness. So that's when you started tackling your 
prejudice about sweet wine and, and tried pairing it with sushi, you and Louise, and you reported back with very favourable results, I remember. So yeah, that was Dr. Lucen's Riesling, which came up in our history app, which was episode four, because that was fun, because history is interesting anyway. It was a bit of a romp, admittedly, but also it did remind us that wines, some wines and some grape varieties, their roots go back hundreds of years. Riesling being an obvious example in Germany, which is why we chose that one. And we were also in Greece, and we tasted that wine, the grape variety Gina Mavro, which you absolutely loved. It was a red wine that was quite pale, if you remember. And yeah. you were very excited about it. And we talked about some really crazy uh, food pairings like a pizza. We did also say we could have it with fish, and that talked about red wine and fish. So even though we didn't focus on food, Seriously, till episode nine, we were starting to talk about food, and that all kicked off with with Riesling and sushi. Absolutely, episode two, we did talk about geography, and the, and it was called thirty fifty. And I felt that that was a good start for you as well, because you got to see how natural factors underpin a lot of what goes on or what is possible in the wine world. Is that right? Yeah, it was a nice shorthand for uh, understanding where wine's going to grow well, uh, obviously, which I had heard of before, but I'd studied it a little bit more, particularly in the Southern Hemisphere. And then we talked about Argentina, I remember, and how there are other factors at play, including even proximity to the ocean, as I recall, but also how high you are up as well. So you can sort of um, deviate from the 30... 50 latitude rule, yeah, if you had other factors going on, like uh, altitude etc moderating influences such as altitude so that's why in, in cafe Ati in argentina this region uh, you can be almost in the tropics at 22 degrees latitude but then when you're at two and a half thousand meters it's kind of fine because as we discussed and you love the stat i remember every hundred meters you go up you drop 0.6 degrees centigrade temperature Oh, golly. And that reminded me of the compromises you make in photography with aperture exposure, the amount of light that's that's going on, etc. And those compromises you make to make a different photo. And I remember we were talking to um, Gabby yesterday from Sipit, the people who do those wine experiences so so well. And she was talking about wine from Mexico. In the old days that I'd gone, Mexico wine, that just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like a winemaking country. But it's actually nothing to do with the history or the economics or what they're famous for it's it's to do with whether they have the the right climate to grow the grapes at the right speed to create cool wine exactly that and i really hope note to ourselves that we will taste some mexican wine in the next incarnation of the wine list and up to just very briefly it was also we, we tasted a, a chardonnay from from chile and we talked about the anything but chardonnay movement which again is all about perceptions and people thinking they don't like chardonnay therefore they'll never order it sort of thing which was interesting because of course as you identified i think because you did your homework chardonnay the most versatile of all the great varieties it makes blinking Chablis. How delicious is Chablis? And of course, talking of Chablis, I don't want to linger on it, but I mean, it was a little bit mean of me to give you a blind taste in Ep3. And I felt as though, in cricketing terms, you looked good at the wicket if you were a batsman. You know, you had composure. <laughs> you looked the part. Unfortunately, you didn't manage to score any runs. That's a nice analogy. I, I felt I was making some progress, even though it was also a bit binary as well. It was. In my favour. Yeah, no, 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 totally. And that was episode three, La Belle France. Whilst we talked a lot about Chablis, and we were obviously talking about... Um, quality levels and can you taste quality which was what the Shabley thing was all about what you did in the second part of that ep was really interesting is that you clearly noticed the difference between a fairly basic well-made basic Cote du Rhone and you contrasted that with the Gigondin which was just a completely different beast much higher quality much more complexity and you spotted that really really well and that was at the end of ep3 so despite the, the the exam result in ep3 I think actually you came a long way but I do remember thinking, hang on a minute, if you concentrate 
and smell and really focus on the two senses. I suppose it's mostly smell, uh, smell and taste. You can detect massive, incredible, uh, profound differences between the, the things you're drinking. And that's one of the things I'm going to take away from the series, which is, you know, getting yourself immersed in the sensual experience, which sounds unbearably pretentious, but it's lovely. It's a really, really interesting thing to want to do. I liken it to um, really looking at a painting, really understanding a painting, what the artist is trying to say getting absorbed in the painting again things that i found utterly pretentious just a few weeks ago i now go i'm starting to get what they mean well that is terrific ep4 we've already touched upon it was our gallop through history but to spare a word for this rather nasty chap who appeared at the end of the 19th century i think you called him phil didn't you Philoxera, nasty geezer. What was interesting, and, and you appreciated this too, is out of something terrible, a decimation of the worldwide vineyards back end of the 19th, early 20th century. Some good actually came out of it. I mean, okay, some people may question whether the uh, evolution of Appalachian Controle was a good thing when it came along in the 1930s, bringing along you know, potential confusion, rules and regulations and bureaucracy and stuff that sometimes people associate with French culture. But obviously what it did was, as you know, and as you told us in your homework in a later episode, Richard, a place and controle is not an indication of quality. It's an indication of... Authenticity, my friend. Regular. Authenticity. In wine terms, it's, that's a terroir-based system which, which has caught on a bit around the world, even though the regs don't exist in the new world. And we talked a lot about the new world and the old world. I really enjoyed that ep and your homework there on the, um, the judgment of Paris. But I mean, it was basically, as we said in that ep, it was how the rules, if you like, and the kind of understanding of terroir in the old world had a major influence on the new world, but the new world could explode on the scene, understanding terroir, but without being tied up in knots with it because they don't have the same legislation. And as a result of that, the new world has recently made the old world up its game. So I think that that Brave New Worlds app, Ol, and you, your judgment of Paris, I think appearing in the middle of the series was, was a good place. It's always quite nice when the young upstart, through just hard work, determination, and putting together a really good product such as the old hermit crab i remember that chester osborne gave us and taking on the old boys and making them up their game i think it's a great story but i just want to hear your really quite passable australian accent here it is this is an australian <laughs> good old uh, australian wine the hermit crab i also like the names of uh, australian wines yeah. as well they're sort of down to earth and a bit quirky and a bit oh yeah i'd just uh, have a glass of the old hermit crab <laughs> oh you've got the crabs there so you might and you can imagine the humor yeah, uh, I think I could do better, but it's very kind of you. Very kind of you. And then you put on a little bit of a South African accent, which I won't play, in, in the next step, which was called The Beauty of the Earth. And this was the first of a couple of really quite long eps. But of course, we did really get under the skin of viticulture, grape growing, the agricultural business of grape growing with its inherent risks, and obviously winemaking, what goes on inside. And certainly as a student, I'd always put, I felt I'd put too much emphasis on what goes on inside the winery, and I didn't give as much thought or respect. But the more I learn about wine, and by the way, oh, I'm learning more about wine almost since I've got my diploma than, than before because I'm just exploring it all the time including doing the podcast with you it's really helped me learn the blinking winemaking goes on it goes on in the vineyard 
the viticulture is so crucial. Oh, blimey. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I always assumed that. But I love understanding the factors, the soil, the aspect, and how some of the most well-respected and famous vineyards are actually quite small. So they, they seem to be the coming together of loads of beautiful factors all in one place. But also the science as well that we went into. So it's the way the grapes are grown and then the way the grapes are turned into wine. And it reminded me um, wholeheartedly that I'm quite glad I'm a management consultant and not a wine grower because the variability in terms of my income would drive me nuts and it would uh, not let me sleep yeah uh, scary old business i think you said in the app you, you, you kind of need to be a certain type of character probably to be to be a, a grape grower in the wine business because of all the inherent risks the fact that you know a hailstorm could just come along one afternoon and kill your crop or birds could attack it or yeah all the rest that's of it. right all these variables yeah. let alone the blinking frosts and heat waves and droughts oh, and all God. the rest of it you could be having your supper and at Hailstead comes, you go, oh, mad. That's uh, uh, naught income this year, pretty much. Oh, I n- there's no way. It's quite good that you've put um, alternative titles to the episode as well, like the historical romp. The next one is olfactory. I thought that's very hilarious. <laughs> Play on words where my olfactory bulb finally comes into its own rather than my amygdala, which has been more of the focus of my life up until that point. That was the one, wasn't it, where we studied the system for the different flavours? That's right. That's when we borrowed the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, WSET's systematic approach to tasting, brackets SAT, level two, copyright. By ep seven, you'd have enough experience of tasting from the first six eps to A, be making some progress. B, we'd had a big ep obviously talking about the importance of viticulture and how that's linked to winemaking. So we could then really focus on tasting as we did with those four wines and this this incredible linkage, but the biology, if you like, the neurobiology and, and the psychology and all the rest of it of smell and taste and how important smell is, how basically fairly primitive our tongues and our taste receptors are in, in our tongues and how all the work is done really starts not all the work but the majority of work is done towards the back of the mouth going up the sinus and towards the olfactory bulb in the brain where all these amazing sensors are, are sort of disentangled interpreted by the brain this comes back to your point about how you've learnt how to focus now more on the smell and taste of a wine and that this is part of your enjoyment and we have obviously talked about i've talked about things like turning the music off and the radio off sometimes so you can actually concentrate mm. really really concentrate on what you're doing I mean, it's a bit extreme it's a bit antisocial doing that but you know one can do it because ultimately we are talking about the human senses that's why we're here off the back of the series we were then into pink and fizz territory which i enjoyed oh, blimey that reminds me of my confession that i have to make oh good you want to make it now dear boy or later well, I, I think perhaps I should. I mean, we, you, you kept on saying throughout the series, and obviously you can't see me through Zoom, particularly when we had those four wines in Ep7, you kept on saying, don't forget the spittoon. Mm. So, Rich, I haven't got a spittoon. What? He says, spitting yes. into his spittoon. That's me. I don't own one. I haven't used one. And I've been drinking the wine <laughs> all season. And so I remember episode seven, feeling like I probably needed a snooze after that. <sighs> Um, not something to show off about, but I, I, I feel you have to know. Well, confession time over. I will think about punishment in due course. <laughs> Shocked by that revelation. Epe, Pink and Fizz, lovely. Not least because you surprised me with your really quite sophisticated knowledge about champagne based on stuff your dad used to occasionally give you. I thought that was terrific. Not that we were extremely well off or anything, but my dad really appreciated enjoyment of the finer things in life, if you like. 
as a sort of um, working class man-made good. We, we were wondering whether that was an advantage or a disadvantage because my earlier exposure to alcohol had been to quite high quality champagne and, and the, the same with the red wine. Everything post that has then been a bit of a disappointment when it comes to sparkling wine. I don't really get much out of um, Prosecco, for example. Fun and fruity. Fun and fruity, just like you. <laughs> and um, uh, I think your expression was there's not much going on or it's just, it's just a, bit, a bit simple. So yeah, we talked a little bit about that in the rosé and the uh, champagne, but I was surprised actually how much I like the rosé and how much the colour of the rosé doesn't really have much bearing on quality which is again it's sort of a bit, a bit like a cheap tawny just very briefly mentioned food and wine we might just pop back to Shea Bruce uh, for a moment so Mr Oliver you have had a fishy lunch here at Shea Bruce and it is Friday you good Catholic boy you with your tuna spring rolls and your Cornish hake delicious uh, amazing I love the spring rolls they do what an appetizer should do which is make you slightly more hungry. But they were delicious. The hake was nice. Maybe I could have taken more seasoning. I did like it a lot, and the wines complemented it beautifully. Excellent. And um, as you're considering your chocolate fondant pudding... Uh, yes, I was going to say, Rich, I have a confession to make. Um, you, you know the sweet wine thing. I'm not sure whether I like it. With a dessert, I, I, I don't, I'm not against a dessert wine. Definitely not. So I'm, I'm flicking through the enormous wine list here. And can you believe, even dessert wines, there's, um, well, if you include Madeira and Port, two pages of them at the Chez Bruce menu. Lovely. France is the biggest contributor to the dessert wine list. Um, but I don't know where to go after that. I think you've mentioned Bordeaux before. Well, I'm sorry to stick in France, which is the obvious thing to do, but I'm just going to be a bit self-indulgent because does take me back to the time that Liz and Topper and I were in southwest France. So Tern is the Bordeaux wine, the sweet wine that everyone's heard of. Montbaziac is the sweet wine you have in Bergerac. I don't think there's a, um, a Montbaziac. I did look at the menu online on the train. By the way, all it took me an hour to get here, you know, up from Farnham to, to southwest London. No sweat. Still didn't manage to read the whole of the wine list in an hour. <laughs> Admittedly, with the voiceover app on the phone reading it to me, but I have the voice set quite fast, and I got, kind of got to about page 90 of 111. That's the way it split it up on my phone. Can we look at the Bordeaux? What have we got? Yeah, there's three. There's the uh, Saturn, as you suggested there might be. There's uh, a Lupiac, lovely mid-price, and... Um, your coffee's just arrived, by the way. And then there's a Chateau, and there's a very difficult word. Uh, it's Chateau Iquem. That's also a Saturn, but a Premier Cru. Chateau d'Iquem. I Hang on, you said the second one ended in Ac. Uh, Lupiac, uh, Cuvée d'Or, Dauphin, Rondillon. We must please, please have the Lupiac. One of my overriding memories about living in France, in southwest France, is the local sort of indigenous historic language, which is called Occitan. And that means everything ends in AC, like Bergerac uh, and uh, Karnak. That's in Brittany, but never mind. But anyway, <laughs> anything that ends in Ac, to me, tells me that I'm in southwest France. So please, can we have the Lupiac? Just for you, yes. It's a Lupiac Cuvée d'Or, uh, Dauphin Rondillon from Bordeaux. And let's have a couple of those with our uh, desserts, which have just arrived and look ridiculously amazing. Wow. I would say one of the unusual discoveries for me, and I think yourself as well in, in the series, was one plus one does not always equal two. It could be two and a bit or even three when it comes to food and wine. Ah, uh, you're talking about the curious incident of the curry at lunchtime. Oh, yes. <laughs> right the curious instance of the curry wasn't that interesting well i'm going to declare this my favorite ep 
there is not one that I haven't enjoyed immensely, but the logistics of getting all that food together, because of course we're not together. And so we had to get both of us a variety of cheeses, meats, a curry, uh, and some risotto and a few other bits and bobs together with um, two wines, uh, keeping it all nice and warm and stuff. But it was worth it. And it was one of the moments of the season for me because it was wow something happened there that a i didn't expect or didn't know was possible and that was you get a lovely wine uh, you get a lovely food you put them together and something else happens in your mouth and you create this third thing which is a beautiful sensory bomb uh, which you didn't expect again something i would have probably found a little bit pretentious but if you really concentrate on what's going on in your gob hole and up your nasal and uh, rather down the hatch say up the sinuses <laughs> to uh, to back reference your, <laughs> your sinus thing wow uh, yeah it was just a, a lovely moment a little bit like appreciating poetry for the first time or classical music for the first time or even rock and roll music for the first time or painting for the first time you're just like ah oh, i sort of start to get it i want more and in terms of the, the series that brings us full circle to epton and where we are today shabrews and the rest but oh take home messages for you well from the whole season yeah uh, do you know what do you know what i really thought i would learn which i haven't actually and that's because i think my memory retention isn't great and my daughter's a very good horse rider and i've just started relearning and we go around courses doing jumps neither of us can remember <laughs> the order of the jumps and i think our short-term memory retention is is a bit whack and it's obviously something slightly hereditary and i apologize to her for that i can't remember the names of the wines i really liked i need to work on that maybe in season two until i'm confident about using the wine list i can't quite remember you know what style i like and what goes with what but what i have learned is taking the time to really assess what is in your mouth and what is going up your nose pays dividends in terms of it being a beautiful sensual experience and it reminds me of um, mindfulness which is a very trendy thing that people are talking about these days and some people are using it to meditate to help them with um problems like anxiety or or being being stressed to really get in the moment and a lot of mindfulness meditation from what i've studied and um, actually attempted is all about trying to understand interpret and just enjoy without comment or judgment the sensory inputs that are going into your brain and it reminded me very much of that when you're just sniffing the beautiful aromas that are coming off this fluid before sipping it and talking about it with a friend like you. And it's just a lovely thing to do, which I'd never really done or understood before. And although uh, I haven't learned so much about, which is my favorite grape, um, what goes with what, what I like at lunch versus dinner, I have learned to really appreciate the, um, the sort of sensual experience of having a really good a good wine that's that's one thing that's been worth doing the series apart from spending time with you of course all by itself i think the other thing that i would say which is the big one is the what i'm calling the food bomb that one plus one equals three as we've called it you get a good wine you get a good piece of food there's some sort of alchemy happens in your mouth and you get this thing which is almost greater than the sum of the parts and at, at the very least it's different and again a lovely um, sensory experience which is sort of quite a surprise it's like oh where did that come from couple of other things i'd say i've written down here the courage to describe what you taste so you describe wines uh, very practically in some ways and then there's a sort of a sort of essence of what the wine is or there's an abstraction of the taste into another you'll, you'll say a, a wine is light or you'll say a, 
uh, a wine is uncomplicated. I'm starting to understand what those really rather abstract adjectives mean, as opposed to fruity or nutty or spicy. Well, I didn't really understand spicy until recently. And of course, I've been able to use that on the port that we enjoyed this lunchtime. A couple of other things. One is the categorization of the way that you can describe the primary, secondary and tertiary. I love that because I love categorization and understanding, you know, what's actually going on in a, in a scientific uh, kind of systematic way. Mm. But what I've also learned is that there is no system because it's a complex system. So it's not about rules or categories. It's about principles and just enjoying it. And I really noticed that shift in your approach to wine during this series. Oh, unsurprisingly, as you sort of just said, at the beginning, particularly, you were bringing this very much a sort of categorization approach to, to wine. Quite rightly, I knew you would. And it's a good place to start because we can often feel comfortable with categorization. Things belong in places cells on spreadsheets or homes or pigeonholes or whatever you want to call it and that's fine it gives us confidence it helps us understand but I really noticed with you throughout the series how yes of course classification is helpful but it only gets you so far and towards the by the end of the series where we are now being systematic is great as an approach but it only helps with principles it cannot cover every aspect of wine and that's why going back to what we said right at the beginning and why my wine journey has has come on so quickly really in the past five years is the intersection of all these different disciplines and the nuanced nature of it which means there are never hard and fast rules and applying principles is is the best way forward rather than trying to to squeeze in rules so all your favorite wines from the series please i do find this tricky i'd, ha- I'd had to go back to my notes to uh, remind myself and that's one of the problems i still have and i'm going to i'm going to address that which is you know just remembering what my favorites were when it comes to music and bands it's so so easy but when it comes to wine um, it's maybe because i'm i'm just getting into it uh, but i do remember some sort of signposting moments as we went through i remember the the cabernet franc or franc because i'd heard of cabernet sauvignon and i remember you going Cabernet Franc and I was thinking oh my god there's a whole load of Cabernets to learn as well now but that was episode two and I loved it and we revisited that um, yesterday as well because we had the same grape and it was lovely again. When you smelt the red wine, you said, that smells amazing. And it reminded you of the Cab Franc from episode two, because Cab Franc at its best has really fantastic aromatics. It was only part of the blend in yesterday's wine with Mello, the Languedoc red that we had. But uh, the one we tasted in episode two was 100% Cab Franc and was fantastic. Good call, all. What else have you got? I've got to uh, mention Dr. Lucing. Uh, and the Riesling in episode four because it was lovely the sushi we had was lovely in the evening and they just went together so well Uh, so uh, Riesling uh, is something I am going to be a fan of and that's one of the grapes I can remember so uh, if that's on the uh, wine list I would certainly give it time then uh, the Gino Mavro that was the Greek thing that we tasted as well and that just absolutely blew me away i remember i got a sniff of that and then I got a mouthful of that and I thought that is as good as anything from from France absolutely lovely and then moving on um yeah the hermit crab the hermit crab again knocked me out it's a voignier and uh, something called marsan as well and I, I like viognier uh but this marsan added something to it which took away some of the things of the voignier I don't like I just remember that wine sticking out for its quality compared with the the two reds that we were tasting in that app so yeah good calls there all any others it was the Beaujolais Village, which I didn't expect to like because I always uh, associated Beaujolais with, with sort of um, trend. Uh, but it was lovely. And it was Village, so it's quality because I know what Village means. And it was a, a lighter red. And I'd been sort of brought up on 
heavier clarets and stuff and i'm starting to realize that i, I sort of like a lighter red i think would be my taste so again having said i haven't learned something about what i like um actually i have you know i've i've learned i like riesling and i i've learned i like a a, a lighter red and i can see how with with your sort of kind of being predominantly a white wine person which you still are not surprised and delighted to realize how much you love that Beaujolais and the Gino Mavra. They're both quite on the lightish side, actually. Although the Gino Mavra had had quite a bit of tannin going on, it was delicious. Uh, I suppose the last one, uh, yeah, I'd have to add the Gewurz Travener uh, because that was my food bomb uh, moment with the uh, curry, and it was lovely on its own. With the curry, um, I had a Sri Lankan broad curry actually, delicious. Hard question now. If you could only take one white and one red to your desert island, which ones would they be? Oh, Desert Island Booze Up. That will be, now that is a radio program right there. Tricky, but impact on my mouth and senses. It would probably be two non-French wines. I would go for the Hermit Crab on the white, uh, and I'd probably go for the Gino Mavro, the Gino Mavro from Greece on the on the red. Yeah, I think I'd probably be very happy with those two choices. Fantastic. So Richard, same question to you. You can name your favourites, but what, what were the two that you'd um, you'd pull out and take on your desert island with you? Okay. First thing to say is actually I enjoyed all of them. Literally, I really, really enjoy all of them because I love wine so much and it's the diversity that I just love and we celebrate every time we have a different glass of wine. That's fine. For one white, one red for my desert island, it would be Chablis Premier Cru for my white wine on the desert island and the red wine. It would be a toss-up between the Rioja Reserva and the Gigonda. Much as I love Gigondin, I'm such a sucker for the old style oaked, quite heavily oaked, coconutty American oak influence. I would go for the Reserva Rioja from España. Thank you very much. So a fairly decent spread, I reckon. Spain, France, Greece and Australia, both hemispheres served. Old world, new world served. And um, a lovely quartet of wines. I think we need to draw this to a close now, Albin. It's the uh, end of episode 10. I'm not feeling as sad now as I was in episode 9 when I realised ep 10, the final ep, was coming up. Maybe it's because I can have a break from editing and <laughs> planning episodes. But just to say, I don't think we need to talk about it now, Al, but I, I, I've got a feeling we're going to be back. Is that right? Yeah, 100%. We've all made ready, as you know, made plans. We're talking to people because we'd like to get some guests on. Guests that share our a passion for wine but our overriding passion for enjoying the damn stuff and there are plenty of people out there who've got some great stories to tell so yes 100% we will be back which is why I'm not sad and I know now guaranteed I'll be spending a lot more time with my friend Richard with whom I um, I have to uh, thank enormously for adding to my education, spending some time with me uh, and making this project a success so far. What a hoot it has been, Richard. Thank you a million, my friend. Oliver, you are most welcome. The Wine List Season 1 is now over. Grab yourself a glass of 10-year-old tawny port if you can at some point. Smell the Christmas cake and the Christmas pudding in the making and just look into the bottom of your glass and think, life ain't too bad, really. <laughs>